0: You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Welcome to Thank You for Your Servers, a show which looks at the tech news of today, but from a libertarian perspective. Now, here is your host, Thaddeus Preston, a.k.a. Nick Way. It's another edition of Thank You For Your Servers. I am your lone host, Thaddeus Preston, a.k.a. Nick Way. You can follow me at Nick Way, N-I-C-K-W-A-Y-E on Twitter. And this is part of the Make Liberty Great Again Network. So, it's been another week. Hopefully, you're listening to episode two of this and if you are welcome back. If it's the first time, this is me giving my take on, I don't know, some of the issues of the day when it comes to the technology industry. And so we'll first things first, kick things off with the first topic that I found particularly interesting this week, and that is the FCC's attempt to thwart, to thwart, China Mobile from entry into the U.S. And it's kind of harkens back to what I would like to call neo-colonial mercantilism. So, the FCC, on the recommendation of the executive branch national security agencies, turned down an application for the China, for the, uh, China Chinese mobile uh, uh, giant to uh, install exchange equipment stateside. Uh, the reasoning given, as the FCC posted in its note, was national security. Basically, the catch-all for, yeah, you have some ties to the Chinese government. We don't necessarily trust you to install that type of on-premise equipment here in the U.S. because you guys have a propensity for espionage and stuff like that. So, the note from a, a, a Pai uh, following the turning down of the application, an application they submitted, like eight years ago, uh, was that the fact that, like, after a lengthy review of the application in consultation with U.S. intelligence community, you know, folks, the executive branch agencies, it has been recommended that the commission deny China's mobile's application due to substantial national security and law enforcement risks that cannot be resolved through something called a voluntary mitigation agreement. Basically, it's kind of one of these handshake agreements where it's just like, hey, when we come to you with warrants and stuff like that, will you give us access to stuff? And, oh, yeah, uh, please don't spy on us. Wink, wink, nod, nod. What is the take that I have on this that is kind of unique from everyone else? This is Sinophobia, and it's spreading across the tech agent industry in general. I mean, now with Huawei, because of the 5G thing, and I'll get to that here shortly as to why that's kind of futile. It's neo-colonial mercantilist bullshit. Pardon the French. It's BS. We've been doing this stuff as a nation for millennia. I wouldn't say millennia. We haven't had telecommunications for millennia, but we've had it for a long time. And... We've been always allowed to install premise equipment within the boundaries of a country to aid in exche- aid in the exchange of phone calls. There's a lot of Chinese nationals that come here and go back and forth and use their phones. And it would have made their transition to the United States to do business easier if they could keep a hold of their Huawei phones, most of them have, to communicate back and forth. Let's not get too bogged down in the technical reasons as to why these exchanges are needed. Let's break down the fact that this is just another attempt at Sinophobia. It's just fear of the Chinese. And we should pro- there are many, many reasons to fear the Chinese. We can go over their political persecution, the Orwellian-like state they're building, their social credits system, you know, uh, you know, throwing of Muslim Uyghurs in you know, prison camps. That's beside the point in this this is not moving forward with the truly interconnected world that we want need for the future to even begin to even break down these barriers this is just erecting a trade barrier and where goods and services can't cross borders eventually armies will and in the future will probably be cyber armies that do it we are slowly but surely bringing online i would i i, I feel this is my tinfoil hat here uh this national security, these uh, national security scare tactics in this, in this coming cold, cold war. And the fact of the matter is they, they put in this application eight years ago. So they've been getting jerked around by the FCC and numerous federal government agencies for eight years just because they needed to install some equipment. This is a chilling sign for the future the build out of communication technologies as I've alluded to. And while the reasoning for national security grounds is warranted, I mean, I can't fathom why a mitigation agreement couldn't have been gotten to. And I don't think they truly understand that as we build out these telecommunications networks, particularly these 5G networks, we're going to be kind of thwarted if we're just refusing to let equipment rest on our shores, if anyone should be slightly paranoid, about putting telecommunications equipment on the North American continent, it should be China, because we are notorious for, um, well, for lack of a better word, tapping said equipment and demanding backdoors doors or forcing open back doors. And so, yeah, this is definitely frightening. It's definitely something from a liberty angle. This is just impediments to trade. And, and Matt, yeah, I, I, there are a lot of folks out there that kind of fall into the Sinophobia kind of realm. I mean, in some areas, I'm with them. But not on this. This seemed pretty straightforward. Deutsche Telekom has equipment here, I would imagine. I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, and that's owned. There's a, I don't know about it now, but back in the day, that, most of that stock was owned by the German government. Hence, Deutsche Telekom. And many of the European carriers, up until, really, the mid-2000s, had heavy government ownership so why are the chinese different you decide so sony's next and last console it will be probably called playstation 5 because they have the most original naming convention that the world has ever witnessed so this new console um is apparently going to be like uh, amd based so they're going amd again it's going to be based on the uh, ryzen line of cpus that's eight cores there'll also be Instead of having integrated graphics and uh, uh, CPU in one die, I think they're, it is looking like they're going to go with uh, two processors. One, of course, dedicated CPU, and one is based on Radeon's Navi GPU. It'll have uh, radio, hardware ray tracing in real time, which is a computational intensive task. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's kind of similar to what uh, NVIDIA's RTX line uh, is capable of. If you've ever seen some of the demo videos for um, the rtx yeah particularly one uh where they were showing you know stormtroopers walking around like some i guess the death star or something like that and it showed like the ray tracing as they were in the elevator you know movies have been doing that stuff for a very long time and it's very computationally intensive and it's typically done post-processing but these new generational processors particularly from nvidia and amd are going to do this in real time 8K as the max resolution, uh, solid state hard drives, 3D audio, and they're still going to go with physical media because let's let's face it, these games are going to require a m- many, many, many times more storage to render what's going to be happening. ETA, is looking like 2020, but probably more close to 2021. This is cool. The gamer in me is always geeked out to see the new and improved and the new line of dedicated video gaming hardware. While I know a lot of PC gamers have probably had these capabilities or will in the coming months and years have this capability, you know, on their custom gaming rigs. It's always good. uh, It's always cool to me to see the engineering uh, that goes into these dedicated gaming consoles, um, which has become more entertainment hubs than they actually have been. Advanced video game consoles dedicated to the one task of delivering premium graphics, great gameplay and a lot. But it's always very interesting, you know, when I geek out, I I geek out on these things because this is really, really cool. I love a transition between video game console generations uh, because now you now it's, you know, it's in Microsoft's court or it's in Nintendo's court or even this might be the last generation of console hardware where there might be a fourth player that comes into the game. I still think this is probably the death knell for dedicated uh, video gaming hardware. Motley Fool, I read an article on Motley Fool, this is maybe, maybe not. Right? Maybe this is it. I mean, this is Sony's big bet on the fact that it won't. But you, Sony itself has a cloud gaming play. Microsoft will have one with Project X Cloud. Amazon is going to do it. Google Stadia is, is going to step into the game here toward the end of the year. Everyone is, you know, even NVIDIA has, uh, has, has a play uh, with their GeForce now. So I find it odd that they would put so much firepower into this box but maybe just maybe uh, the things that this box will be capable of are going to push us past what any cloud gaming platform will be able to provide that remains to be seen and then a lot of these latest generational consoles actually do uh, rely on a lot of background cloud infrastructure for for uh, ai for uh you know some of the physics and other things like that so This might just be like a marrying of the two. This might just be a super duper uh, high-end just set top box for eventually delivering cloud gaming. But I don't know. It's, I think it's cool. There's not much of a liberty angle to it. It's just, it's just cool. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing really not just what this hardware is capable of doing, but most importantly, what uh, X, you know, what Microsoft is going to bring to the game, and what Nintendo will inevitably be bringing to the game, and see, like I said, if there's another player that wants to even step into the game, and for every one of these out of the park boxes with all these real-time, computationally intensive processing of you know just amazing visuals, I'm almost I'm, I'm very curious to see what the next kind of custom gaming rigs. That will be you know that anyone can build based on um, nvidia's uh, processors or based on amd's processors will look like when it comes to the next generation of games but that remains to be seen yeah i'm excited for this i'm stoked all right poor intel well the other day intel uh, corporation announced that it is intention to exit the 5g smartphone modem business and to complete an assessment of opportunities for 4g and 5g modems in pcs internet of things and devices and other data, uh, data-centric devices. Intel will continue to invest in 5G network infrastructure business going forward. But when it comes to the next, next generation of 5G, they're out. And this, poor Intel, poor Intel, right? Well, this is important for a couple of reasons, right? The, the first reason being, like, Intel just continues to stumble when it comes to mobile. And this is just another example of that. Like, it was late to the game when it came to ARM-based chips. It's only saving grace is the fact that in the last, what, eight years, that uh, Apple moved to Intel for the Macs. But it's even rumored that they're going to start doing their own processors in the Mac. And, you know, uh, the next iPhone that was going to be 5G was going to use these uh, yet-to-be-flushed-out 5G smartphone modem chips from Intel But because Intel was having such difficulty in delivering the performance that was required, Apple started looking elsewhere months back, months, months back. And so Apple just settled its suit with Qualcomm. So, you know, because it needed to. It knew it didn't have a play when it came to doing these 5G modems and really an all-out battle with Qualcomm over this would be a waste of time, especially since it was becoming very, very apparent to Apple that Intel was not going to be able to deliver. Apple continues to actually move this stuff in-house. A lot of it's, you know, granted, it still has, you know, there's still patent infringements and it's still encumbered by certain patents that uh, are held. But particularly when it starts moving into 5G, where Huawei holds a significant amount of patents, and there's not many p- players in the market. It's literally just Huawei and Qualcomm when it comes to modems, um, and Qualcomm being the best U.S. company and Huawei being the up-and-comer that actually has a lot of 5G patents. There's there's also MediaTek, which is also kind of a Chinese company, a Taiwanese company. I think it's either Taiwanese-based with Chinese manufacturing or vice versa. Either way, it, it's... It's not looking good for Intel. Intel is going to continue to be an enterprise play and a desktop play, and they're they, uh, like they're saying they're going to focus on maybe having modems in laptops and and PCs and stuff like that. But I mean, the PC era, as far as I'm concerned, is eh, When it comes to the mom and pop user of these devices, is dead, right? I mean, enterprise is where it's at. Even on you know the podcast I'm recording right now is being recorded on like yeah, it's in Core i3, which is nothing. But I don't need a lot of power, right? When you have the cloud, I don't need a lot of power unless I'm doing like hardcore, like audio, video, editing, even coding for the most part, as long as you don't have a very, you know, resource hog when it comes to like IDE, you don't need much. And so you're not into this play. And as for the internet of things, any and everybody's going to get in that market. And I, and, and, you know, they're just going to be one of many, many players, I think Intel's in trouble. I think they're in trouble long term. I think this deal with Apple for trying to be in the next 5G iPhones, at least the 5G iPhones that were going to be available in North America and Europe, I think that was a blow. And I think the fact of the matter is that they bowing out of this means from a technical standpoint, they can't, particularly because it's encumbered, they, they can't compete with Huawei and Qualcomm. And now Huawei and Qualcomm have really, now for the most part, Qualcomm has kind of settled its battle with Apple. And are going to push forward with the next generation of ships. It's the only competition stateside that's going to be able to compete with Huawei with 5G. But that kind of goes back to the first topic and the first story I discussed when it came to just xenophobia, right? We're going to shoot ourselves in the foot here when we try to build out this 5G network that we will inevitably need. And, you know, the 4G network will continue to evolve over time. And, and as Intel said in its statement, it will continue to, you know, kind of push for that. But... That's gonna run out that's gonna run out of steam in probably another decade and it will all be 5G, no matter what frequency range that, that 5G is deployed here stateside. And the people who own the most the best equipment with the you know that produces the best results and give it up to Huawei, be it hookah by crook, they have the best equipment in the world. Nokia is not gonna be able to compete. Qualcomm is only going to be able to compete when it comes to the internal guts of these. But a lot of the key technologies that are gonna push this technology forward come from Huawei. And this is just kind of sad that you know a, an American institution that is Intel isn't gonna really try to compete in this market because it can't compete in this market. It's tried and it's failed. And so we're, and we're on this you know, neo-colonial mercantilist kick with, you know, executive orders coming down that we can't, you know, that companies really can't use Huawei's equipment. It's the phobia There's going to be less competition when it comes to getting access to this technology, and particularly the modems, because smaller players will have to bow down to the two best in the business, and maybe some smaller players will come about, maybe some, you know, via increasingly more Chinese espionage, maybe there'll be some more Chinese players, but they will be Chinese players. Yeah, now I'm starting to think that... Um, IP sucks. <laughs> Hat tip to uh, Stefan Consella when it comes to that. There's not a lot of players, man. The market's converging around two. One's American back, one's you know Chinese back. But the future 5G really does sit with Huawei, and it's very very sad to see that uh, there'll be a player bowing out because they can't compete. All right. So Pinterest and Zoom had IPOs this week. Uh, And the the IPO market is popping off like it's 1999. And the first company to go public, I think, on the... uh, Well, one of the first companies we'll discuss that went public first is good old-fashioned Pinterest. Pinterest is that app that has all the prettiest pictures and it's all in this very beautiful design and it's a very aspirational website and a very aspirational app. And uh, it's kind of been a slow-moving... You know, uh, company unicorn or undercorn is, is sometimes depicted because it didn't price nearly as high high in its IPO debut than it did when it was a privately traded company. But it finished today uh, at about 12 billion dollars in market capitalization. It popped 25 percent. Started at 19 per share, got up to and closed at about 23.75. It doesn't necessarily make Bill Selberman a billionaire per se. But it now meant a new multimillionaire, and I mean, the company is, you you read stories about the company, it has been very slow and very deliberate in its ascendancy as the other social network, right? I mean, it has avoided many of the problems of Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and stuff like that, and it's just kind of been this very aspirational site, man. I mean, from beautiful design to recipes to beautiful women to shoes, cars, interior design... And then, of course, they've been, you know, slowly ramping up their um, advertising model, and and the company is coming to market with less debt than, say, Lyft, who has kind of gone through a spir- death spiral in the last week, um, because essentially it is not a very profitable company. Pinterest is also not profitable, but it is it is a lot more profitable than the than the companies that have come to market as part of the Silicon Valley unicorns that have been started over the last decade. The other company, which is kind of much more of a feel-good story and something that I love seeing, particularly because, you know, unlike most people, I'm not a troglodyte when it comes to, you know, immigration, is Zoom. So Zoom is like the video conferencing uh, company. Uh, It priced at $36 a piece. It popped to $65, and it made Eric Yuan a eight time visa seeker who was denied eight times before he was admitted into the United States of America, it made Eric a billionaire. And with with the pop of almost 81% in his debut. This is a really good feel good story. This is kind of what makes America, America. I mean, our stupid immigration system that allows undocumented, unskilled to kind of flood across the border, which I eh, don't really care about, but denies people who are educated and determined and, like, truly are, like, you know, the bread and butter of what makes the the country great, the Silicon Valley great. Just, you know, eight times (laughs) he was denied. (laughs) Before he was finally allowed to come here, he started with Webvan and he just kind of worked his way through the valley and then started this company. And now, uh, 20 years later, he's a billionaire. And um, only in America, man. It's crazy. It's crazy. Zoom is actually a lot more closer to profitability. I th- they say they're profitable. That basically means that, like, from a pro- from a standpoint of, you know, debt to whatever, I mean, they're making money, right? They're not not making money, right? They're not losing money. Um, and so they'll probably much close their profitability gap here shortly. And, yeah, it's actually the reason it really popped 81% is because it came to market with, you know, less debt and a path to profitability and growth that has been... Uh, fairly phenomenal. Pinterest the same way, which is has had growth is less than phenomenal. Uh, the company will probably be forced to put its feet, uh, put its foot on the gas a little bit. It's been a very slow. Pinterest has been a very slow and deliberate company. These were two strong IPOs. These different issues sh- shows that the, the two CEOs of these companies are very and co-founders of these companies are very very deliberate in their growth. And just looking at a Bloomberg interview with uh, Eric. Yuan, he himself thought that the stock price was too high (laughs) right um so these guys know that the trials and tribulations and the double-edged sword of going public and they're being very cautious and they and they were when these companies waited a very long time to go public and they were very very cautious unlike snap unlike lyft unlike the Farmville company or whatever like all these companies you know that have kind of gone public because they popped and they were just you know they ready to go so I joke about this being, you know, IPOs popping off like it's 1999. But unlike 1999, a lot of these companies that are kind of, it seems like a lot of companies are going public, um, you know, but a lot of these companies have been around for a decade or more and have been very slow and deliberate and steady in their growth. And Pinterest and Zoom are just better examples than Lyft and Snapchat of being better companies going public and adding real value. And, And I think it's very, very healthy that they've had debuts we'll see next week what happens zoom is trading on nasdaq under the symbol zm pinterest is trading on a new york stock exchange which is kind of rare under you know the uh, the, the, the the ticker symbol pins p-i-n-s clever and we'll we'll see what their performance looks like uh next week when there's you know essentially going to be some profit taking even for pinterest that didn't pop that much um, but yeah, man. All in all, man, this is really cool, really awesome. And I, I, I only in America, man, markets do this. Um, and you know, these guys built great businesses. They've hired great people, and they built a great product. And that's what it's all about. Congratulations to Ben and Eric for being in the multi-millionaire, billionaire club. And uh, watch your wallets because Bernie Sanders. Gonna be knocking at your door soon. In your cryptocurrency minute, let's go through the prices here. Starting by market capitalization. Number one, Bitcoin is trading at five thousand three hundred and twenty-two dollars and twenty cents. It's up 1.09%. Ethereum is at 173.30 and it is up 0.62%. XRP Ripple trading at 33 cents, up 0.12%. Bitcoin Cash is sitting at about $304.19, up 2.14%, and picking up the rear in market capitalization, Litecoin at 8147 that's down $1, 1.41%. And that is your Crypto Minute. And now, my friends, a bit of a rant to close things out. So, I was reading through the tech press as I was doing show prep for the show this week, and I read three articles in a row that were very, very interesting. Now, because I suck at my job, I didn't necessarily grab the links that I needed necessary to actually formulate and bring this together, so I'm just going to talk off the cuff. One of the stories was definitely a story I saw in Engadget that I can't find anymore, telling, you know, sh- there's a study out there that shows that 100% renewable mandates are a sham or a scam or to put it in no words, would in and of itself create a lot of environmental degradation that we are hoping to avoid because we want to bring down our carbon footprint and stop emitting greenhouse gases. A subsequent story I then read um when when it comes to you know the extraction industries that will have to dig up the cobalt and do the lithium uh, uh, open pit processing and mining is the fact that audi's first electric car is going to be delayed because of a battery shortage and there's a battery shortage because people don't tend to understand there's a finite amount of these rare earth metals and these other types of metals that we need to extract from the ground that would make this 100% renewable future even happen. From the, the semiconductors necessary to do solar panels to the rare earth metals required for turbines and, uh, and motors and all the other things that'll be required in the future if we are to be 100% renewable energy will in and of itself cause a great environmental degradation. And the place we need the most of these kind of special compounds cobalt being one of them comes from the democratic republic of congo which is known for its brutality war child soldiers and slave labor and so for those of us typing for those of us typing on computers and smartphones and doing all this stuff a lot of those rare earth metals and materials that we need to even build said devices come from places such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, because we refuse to extract in the West the resources that we require for the technologies that we're going to use in the future to make us 100% renewable and green. See, we forget about these things because, you know, those particularly in the tech press and those who have no scientific background whatsoever are, for lack of a better word, naive they think that we're going to come up with unicorn methods of energy, unicorn methods of computation, unicorn methods of all this stuff. They think we're just going to invent it out of thin air. Not understanding that the underlying consequence of being in you know, having electric all electric vehicles on the road, solar panels and renewable energy in the form of wind and solar and blah 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 blah, well in and of itself create a new dilemma for the environmentalists and the zealots, it will cause the extraction of these materials from Mother Earth that will leave detrimental effects in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, and not just effects on the environment, for which these environmentalists have a almost myopic view of. But look at the societal consequences in the democratic republics of Congo. Look at the societal implications in places like China, in places like India, in places like that. You know, the third world in that instance. Look at what we've done to the Middle East when it comes to oil. The war, the degradation, the hostility, the propping up of terrible dictatorships and governments. But we need the new Green Deal or Green New Deal or whatever the hell, the latest myopic you look a utopian world that we want to create because we're afraid we're hurting the earth. Those who are sober enough to actually study it and break it down know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is crap. This can't be done. And if you're not putting nukes on the table as part of that energy mix, all the legislation you pass for mandating here in the United States and across the world, that we will be 100% renewable by X number of date means absolutely positively nothing. Because we tend to always understand and want to analyze and degradate the upstream and downstream operations of fossil fuel extraction from the earth. But we always seem to have a blind spot when it comes to the same extraction both upstream and downstream operations when it comes to these extraction industries that we do to the places that we're going to need to pull these metals from to build this Green New Deal utopia. Food for thought. All right, fam, I am out. There's been another edition of Thank You For Your Servers. We're logging off, but please follow us at the Make Liberty Great Again Network on Twitter. And... um, at Nick Way on Twitter. Again, we're logging off. Thank you for your servers.